We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. How do you get on with your father? Do you respect him and look up to him? How important is being a father to your own identity? Do you have a sense of what it means to be a good father beyond paying the bills and lending the keys to the car? What role models are there for fathers in popular culture and on TV? Well, from Fred Flidstone to Homer Simpson, fathers are goofy, lazy, bumbling, or even dangerous and abusive like Darth Vader. In the classic fairy tales, they abandon their daughters like Cinderella to wicked stepmothers, or they send them off to live in a haunted castle like in Beauty and the Beast. On commercials, fathers are simply the butt of the joke. On social media, people poke fun at themselves over their daddy issues. So we're going to take a deep dive into the subject of fathers today. John Popola is a director and content creator who's worked for a lot of famous media companies like MTV and Nickelodeon, and he's the host of the podcast Dad Saves America. So if we're talking about fathers, we have to start straight away with our relationship with our own fathers. So what was your relationship like with your father growing up? Well, I'm very lucky that my relationship with my dad continues because I'm 45 years old and he isn't yet 70. So he did something that was common in the past and now looks downright strange in, in America, at least, which is he had me, or I was born, I should say, when he was 23 years old. <laughs> and my dad is my number one hero. He is the person that has, along with my mom, of course, he's modeled what it means to be a man and what it means to have strength and take care of your family. My dad is very much a stoic. He's a surgeon. So I grew up, again, because he's a surgeon now, but he had me when he was 23. So he was still in medical school and residency. And so my early childhood was about seeing my dad do two things at once, be on call and go to the ER all hours in the day and night, and also be so present in my life that I never felt his absence. And those were just blessings that I had that I think, you know, we talk a lot about privilege in our society these days. That was a privilege. And it's a privilege I wish more people had. And with your father being so young, I'm assuming that you had a grandfather as well who was very present. Am I correct with that? Oh, hopefully even two grandfathers. I, I did. I had all four grandparents for quite a long time, all things considered. There was really sort of a trifecta of men in my life. My mom's father, Bill Fadulo, was just very active and just an incredible person. He was the kind of person that, you know, he just gathered friends and fans as he rolled through life because he was gregarious and funny and had a sharp, occasionally cutting wit. He didn't go to college, but he was a Renaissance man. So he flew planes and built houses and could paint beautiful oil paintings. And, and so me, my dad really actually related quite a bit with his father-in-law. Now, my dad's dad was also in my life, and I love my grandpa, Gino Popola, but in terms of truly like constant bonding and time, it was my mom's dad, Bill Fadulo, his son, my mom's brother, who very painfully passed away last year. I'm sorry to hear that. Bill Fadulo, his son, and then my dad. And we would golf together. We would go out together all as a group and independently. And so I just, it was a rich childhood to have that much going for me as far as my relationships with the men in my family? Well, my relationships with my grandparents, I had two grandmothers who both lived a long life. My father's father died when I was about four or five years old, so I only have a couple of memories of him. And my mother's father died before she was born. So I just had effectively a father who lived to be 91 so, you know, in that way, I was very blessed. And in fact, the older he became, the closer we got to each other. He died. Uh, we're coming up 
not so long uh, to the second anniversary of his death. But he was a very distant sort of character. It was a case that children were left to mothers to bring up. And although my father was around a lot of the time, he always seemed to be in another room, I think would be the best way of describing it. And in my experience, that's not uncommon that a lot of people have distant fathers. Well, I think that it's less common than it used to be. So when I was a creative director at Spike TV, I was doing work around fatherhood, actually, and Spike, which now is Paramount Network, it was called the first network for now. And we actually did a study, a sort of research study, and I filmed a little documentary around it about the changing role of men. And actually, if you go to a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Popola, you can see some of the ads that came out of this. My gener- I'm Gen X. My peers are quite a bit more engaged and more well-rounded and have taken on more of what would be traditionally feminine aspects of parenting, being engaged, playing more with the kids, you know, sharing the household responsibilities. I, for example, woke up every morning, still to this day, frankly, with my son from an early age. My wife needs to sleep in. It's just something her constitution is such that if she doesn't get sleep in in the morning, she's a wreck. And she'd have him all day. So it was the time I could spend with him. So I think there's been a generational shift that hasn't been culturally acknowledged, that men have taken on a lot more well-rounded responsibilities and balanced our relationships in a, I think, really healthy way. And there just seems to be a lag in recognition of that. And how did becoming a father change you? That's a great question. Well, it changed me in a way that nobody prepared me for, being a dad. So I went to film school. I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. I was working in entertainment in New York City and, and holding myself to this sort of ludicrous standard of career progress. You know, the entertainment business is incredibly competitive. It's a very steep mountain with not a lot of room at the top. <laughs> and so when my son was born, it was transformational in a way that I didn't expect because instead of being in awe of the responsibility that he brought into my life, I was liberated from my self-obsession. I suddenly had this person that I was responsible for, but who the responsibility was like the most exciting adventure I'd ever been tasked with. And so everything else was kind of gravy. And I've thought about this a lot. And becoming a dad gave me a kind of psychic FU money to take on bigger risks in my career because failure didn't ding my identity the way it would have beforehand. You know, when you embody your work as your identity, it does create this problem of, I don't want to fail. And if I fail, does that mean I'm a failure? If I don't achieve the goal I've set out, does that mean I'm no good? And what happened when he came along is it said, oh, go for it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Do you start again? (laughs) You have to get a different job? or so. Becoming entrepreneurial and leaving network television to start a company, I don't think I would have had it in me to do that prior to his birth. And I think you've made a really good point there because one of the advantages I think often for women is that their identity is split across a range of different things, you know, that they see themselves as a, whatever their career is, they see themselves as a mother, maybe a friend, a sister, a daughter, whereas sometimes men sort of see themselves just as their career. And that makes us very vulnerable. Yeah, it's, you know, some of this is, I think, evolved, right? Men are, on average, more risk-taking because that's always been the role we've played. We're sort of more, dis- we're the more disposable sex. We go out, we, we go out there to fight wars and climb electrical poles and do these jobs that are likely to kill us. And we do them partly because we're physically stronger and partly because we're sort of wired for that kind of risk-taking. And because we're stupid sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we like it. And uh, not everybody, but again, on average. So yeah, there's a certain amount of useful stupidity in that. And we're sort of a compartmentalizing creature. I know there's this sort of, this might be pop psychology, that when testosterone hits the brain in development, it sort of splits the left and right and creates a more compartmentalized kind of thought process. I mean, a great example for me personally is if I'm on the phone and someone talks to me in the room, I can hear neither person now. (laughs) And multitasking is a lie. We can only task switch. There is no multitasking. Women can seem to genuinely multitask, although maybe they're just doing the task switching a little more effectively than we are. So that identity 
that sort of monomaniacal identity is, I think, a very deeply ingrained part of masculinity. There's a lot of talk these days about toxic masculinity and a crisis in fathering. What do you think of those two sort of ideas? Well, you know, there is toxic behavior. I think the fact that toxic and masculinity have been used pretty singularly is not about acknowledging reality, but is, is fundamentally a sort of political slogan because there's an equal amount of toxic behavior on the other side of the gender divide. It just manifests in different ways. So men tend to be more physically aggressive. Women tend to be more socially aggressive. This is work that I'm just cribbing Jonathan Haidt and other psychologists and social psychologists who've sort of explored behavior with an open mind and not letting their politics prejudice their work. So there's toxic behavior. The notion that toxic masculinity is a slogan we all need to confront, I sort of reject. I didn't raise my son, who's now 18, to be a non-toxic man. I've approached him, and so has my wife, to be a good person. And I think there's a universal notion of what it means to be a good person and to be a functional adult. So the toxicity is something that we need to be on guard with regardless. I do think because men are, on average, again, more likely to be at the extremes, and this is work that shouldn't be controversial if you believe in actual inquiry, you know, looking at the facts, looking at the data, but it is, is that the distribution, so to speak, statistically, the way that behavior plays itself out at the large scale is that men take greater risks, which puts them in line to be bigger successes on average. And so we see more CEOs, more presidents, more prime ministers. And on one hand of the spectrum, on one side of the distribution, on the other, we take risks such that we're 95% of the prison population. <laughs> you know, So that's a natural phenomenon. And it I think, causes us to focus culturally on on the toxicity in men more than women. And I think there's also the historical reality that, look, women didn't have the right to vote. Women were not given an equal place in our social order until relatively recently. And so the notion of focusing on toxic female behavior doesn't feel as politically correct. So what about the idea that we have a crisis in fathering, that there are generations of men and obviously girls as well that have not much contact or no contact with their father or they have two or three fathers? It's, you know, it's not unusual for me to have to work with people with three fathers, sort of kind of the biological one, the first stepfather and the second stepfather. And it's unusual to be working with somebody with three mothers. I, <laughs> it's funny because I'm reading this book, The Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Brett and Heather. It talks a lot about some of these things through an evolutionary lens. So I've tried to avoid sort of pop summarizing things I just read, but without a doubt, at least in the United States, which is the area where I have the most familiarity, we have a crisis of fatherhood in this country. One in four American children are living in a home without a biological step or adoptive father present in the home. Now, maybe that number's a little better when you take into account people who are in their lives but don't live in the home. But even so, the numbers are shocking. America leads the world in this sort of tragedy. And it's also very much cuts across all racial categories. You know, African-American fatherlessness and illegitimate births, so to speak, have gotten headlines in a lot of conversation over decades, especially for right of center people. But today in America, White households have the rate of fatherlessness that African Americans had in the 1960s when Patrick Moynihan was writing about this as a social problem that needed to be confronted at the national scale. So we have a very real crisis here. And there's some acknowledgement of it, but relative to how important it is, there's not nearly enough. That's part of the motivation behind what we do with Dad Saves America. Now we're trying to focus on the positive, which is why is fatherhood heroic? How should you, as a father that's intellectually curious, think about the challenges of the world so that you can impart wisdom to your kids and hopefully raise them to be functional adults instead of giant crybabies that want to pull down statues when they get off their job at Starbucks? Or go to a mall and shoot half a dozen people. Because if you look at the shooters, I would be very surprised if many of them had a good relationship with their father. I have friends who work closely in nonprofits inside the prison system and care a lot about recidivism. 
And they will tell you that 80 to 90% of the prison population, and again, that's another area where America leads the world, but the leading prison population on the planet Earth, 25% of the world's prison population for 5% of the world's actual population. It's 80 to 95% of those men are fatherless. And this is like the most well-established social scientific fact. If you have a father present, and it doesn't even need to be super dad, but, you know, present, you know, not abusive, loving, even if it's mostly loving in the old 1950s stoic kind of way, both boys and girls are going to do wildly better across every metric. Women will get, when they become women, they're more likely to have healthy relationships with their future spouse. They're less likely to get pregnant before marriage. All the maladies that we see on the boy front are reduced dramatically. It's like, it's like the single cure-all that's the most complex problem to solve. It's not really solvable, really, in the national level, only at the individual level. And yet, it's not the number one topic on the news, really, which, you know, that every time, for example, you know, there is a shooting, which seems from this side of the Atlantic to be, you know, basically one a day, they talk about gun control, but they never talk about where are the fathers of these boys. They're mostly boys. Yeah, oh yeah, almost entirely. Again, that distribution of wildness plays itself out in that statistic. Look, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one is this is not an easy problem to solve or to pretend you're going to solve with some glib political buzzwords, right? So gun control is a glib political buzzword that you can throw around anytime there's a shooting and it resonates if you don't think or pay much attention to the facts that, oh, well, a gun was used. If we ban guns or if we reduce their access to them, we'll have less of that. And look at the UK and look at Australia and look at these countries and look at Switzerland, even though they've got guns up the wazoo, but they don't seem to have like, what? what's wrong with us? And it's a reasonable question. What's wrong with America that there's so much gun violence? But gun control is this simple glib answer. And so politics and the news love to gravitate towards that. It's not clear what to do about fatherlessness at the national level. The attempts to support People at the margin with public policy have been probably on balance, mostly destructive. So the early attempts to alleviate poverty in terms of the welfare state ended up creating very strong incentives, some of which still exist, to not marry and to have kids out of wedlock. It'd be great if our government policy simply stopped trying to encourage fatherlessness. That would be a great place to start. The family court system in the United States is deeply, deeply biased against men. When there's a conflict, it is overwhelmingly biased towards granting primary or full custody to the mother, regardless of the circumstances. So that encourages fatherlessness at a systemic level. But these are complex questions to talk about. And so gun control, like glib sloganeering, doesn't fit neatly into that. So you've put together a podcast called Dad Saves America. Can Dad Save America? Yes, this is probably the single biggest thing each of us individually, as men in particular, can do for the country is to embrace the heroic role of being a dad and to see it as something that is a goal for our lives and one that does ripple out from our family to our community to the country. That leadership, that fatherlessness leadership that America, you know, has around its neck is an albatross on our families. And it, as we've been talking about, it expresses itself in all of these pathological facts of American culture. And I think in today's age, we are bombarded 24-7 on all of our screens by bad news of which we have no ability to act affirmatively. We get hit with stuff and it makes us angry, but there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And you can say, well, I can vote. It's like, okay, sure. You can make yourself feel good about your vote. It doesn't actually physically change the circumstances, not the least of which because your personal vote probably doesn't change the outcome anyway. Not to say voting is not important, but relative to choosing to be a dad, voting is nothing. <laughs> Being a good dad, if you never vote in your life, but you're a good dad, I'll take you as a civil servant of the United States over the person that's a, a deadbeat and votes every election cycle. This is something that is not only at our disposal to be positive for the country, but fundamentally it is the best answer we have to the purpose void that so many men in particular and young men, you know, young men and boys, my son's age, 18, 19, into their early 20s, that are suffering from. 
you know, our society, our culture has not given my son's generation a lot of aspirational pathways to feeling purposeful and living a meaningful life. They're mostly told your time is past, you're toxic, shut up, go away. Your first couple of days of college, you're going to be bombarded by ideological nonsense that doesn't help you become an effective person or take ownership of your life. And my message is there's really powerful things you can do that are within your control to be a better man and to express that in fatherhood. So I've come up with the idea that if there is going to be a dad that's going to save America, he's got to be super dad. And so what superpowers would super dad have? And I have nine nine superpowers for super dad. So I'm going to take you through them and see what you think of them and whether you agree with them. And they're not, to be perfectly honest, the things that will come straight to mind for most men. But I think these are superpowers that men have. The first one is listening. 100%. You're going down the road of the kind of things I care about. If it's a superpower for men, it's probably a power that's hard for us. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, if it's wearing tights and flying through the air, piece of cake. But to actually listen, because unfortunately, Men often think their task is, and this is somebody who spent the last almost 40 years listening to men talk, I mean, basically to their wives, but in uh, groups of men as well. And they feel that they have to solve the problem. And actually, they'd be much better listening to what the person is saying rather than rushing in with a solution. I agree with this wholeheartedly. I struggle with it on a daily basis. Like, I think like most men, I am very quick to want to solve a problem that's presented. And, you know, my wife and I are happily married and probably one of the best pieces of advice for a happy marriage is learn how to listen and not immediately assume that just because your wife is talking to you about a problem that what she wants from you is the solution. Here's a great question. You can say, do you want to be heard? Do you want to be hugged or do you want to be helped? And if you ask that question, you'll know the answer because it won't always be clear. I mean, I would generally go for the herd, but you know, if you're unclear, ask that. Would you like to be helped? Would you like to be held? Or would you like to be heard? Heard, helped, or hugged, or held? I think that's a great strategy. Wise advice, sage advice. So this is the next one of my superpowers. And this is another difficult one. for It sort of um, fits in. I think this is particularly with fathering, and that's show, not tell. Now, my father was always telling me how to do things rather than showing me and helping me achieve them. I was supposed to stand there and show an interest. Can you imagine how much interest I showed? Not very much. So there was always a tension there. Well, I think a great place to start on this one is don't just tell show. (laughs) Okay. Right. Because I think getting us to not tell, I'm as guilty again as any man of being uh, excessively lecturous. It's funny. So as a filmmaker, this is also our cardinal rule, right? Show don't tell. It's a visual medium. You don't want your characters to express themselves in a lecturous monologue. You want them to do things and reveal who they are through the actions they take. And I think this is absolutely the case with all of us as parents and as role models. Our kids pick up on what we're doing and how we behave. And that will always take primacy over what we tell them. And man, when there's a gap between what we tell them is right and what we show them is right, they're going to go with the show. When the tell doesn't align, it's not going to be good for our um, legitimacy as an authority with them, especially as they get into the teenage years. (laughs) The next one, ugh, this definitely needs to be a superpower, and that is patience. Well, a lot of our guests on the show, this is a question we, we ask pretty routinely, is you know what tests your patience? And patience is very closely connected to listening, right? Again, that same, that desire, that engine that's in us to take action, to jump into it, to jump into the fray. We need to stop and take a deep breath. And it's a great practice to learn. You know, and I think a good example of this is in relationships when whatever you might be fighting about, sleep on it and see how upset you are the next day, right? 
<laughs> Give yourself whatever break you can when your emotions are running wild, because chances are they're taking over your better nature. So my next one, which I think is one that we sort of definitely find easier to do, but I, I think we've got to have some superpowers that uh, we're going to go with easily, and that is toughness. Well, yeah, I mean, I think toughness is really important. And I think the most important toughness is actually um, mental toughness. The way I would interpret that is, again, not letting your emotions get the best of you. You know, and every one of these traits, right, has a, a light side and a dark side and can be taken too far. But I think that if you can control your emotions and put them in context and be tough about it, you know, you can accomplish very difficult things. That to me is what toughness is about. It's like, how do you accomplish very difficult things? And I think one of the most difficult things that stands in your way is, you know, letting your emotions get the best of you. Toughness is very connected to a stoic mindset for me. And I think it's also about keeping going as well. You know, we have to do lots of things we don't like because they're there, they need to be done, and it needs a sort of a toughness to keep going. You know, that I discovered that my father, I always thought he was an accountant, and I always thought he wanted to be an accountant. It was many years later I discovered that his father thought it was a good idea, fixed him up with a job, and, you know, he had such a good job, he sort of, or training opportunity, he couldn't sort of turn it down. And, you know, he never really wanted to be an accountant. He didn't particularly like it, but he went off there for 30 plus years to provide for all of us. And, you know, it takes a certain amount of toughness to keep going at something that, you know, you can do, but, you know, it doesn't actually bring you huge amounts of joy. And I don't think I ever really appreciated that or understood. Yeah. You know, I think this is the one of the things that we are robbing our kids of in a truly damaging way in our culture today. And this has been going on for a while now, certainly in America, probably in the UK and just in the West more broadly, but certainly in America. And that is, our overprotective parenting and our helicoptering, our helping our kids overcome every obstacle because we're hoping they'll get into Harvard and, oh, you got to be. And so now I'm going to talk to the teacher to make sure you can get an A instead. All this clearing of the obstacles, we're basically stripping them of the practice, the muscles that develop into toughness through experience. I think that's the thing, you know, the way you're describing it, I think toughness is, is the attribute that makes it possible for us to have resilience and persistence and to stick with things. We have to be tough to stick through a hard thing. And where do you get that from? I think you have to get it from experiencing the reward of going through a hard thing and coming out the other side and have, and earning the success of that. And even when you fail, you know, seeing that the failure didn't kill you. This is like a disease of the wealthy West that we are destroying these opportunities for our kids in the name of trying to set them up to succeed. And instead, we're setting up to be anxious, to be emotionally juvenile, and to be wanting of safe spaces at every turn because they're not tough enough to deal with even ideas that threaten their worldview. This cuts very deep to the things I'm concerned about and that we talk about a lot on our show. So the next one I've got, this is a really deep ask, and I'm going to have to explain it, and that's curiosity. And the reason I say curiosity, and actually, I would really want this for both parents, who is my son, who is my daughter, rather than who do I think they should be? You know, what does society say they should be? You know, to actually really find out who this person is, to be curious, not to think, oh, you know, I know my son, he's the clown sort of kind of thing, but to really get down underneath this, to be genuinely curious. Who is this? Who is this child? I mean, it sort of goes along with the questions I'm always asking of who am I, to have a curiosity about your child. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to frame curiosity as a parent. I think it's really powerful because one of the tensions that we all have, and this is maybe even more true for somebody who's super involved in their parenting, in some ways, like the slightly negligent parent might be better for the kid in this regard, is how much do we project our own baggage onto our kids? How much do we see ourselves in them such that we want them to achieve the things that we want, not what they might want for themselves? 
And that is really difficult because you look at them and they're a little version of you. And they do express a lot of traits and preferences because it turns out that genetics don't just affect your looks. They affect your brain. They affect your personality. They affect everything. So your kids inherit a lot of you and your spouse. And so you see yourself in them literally. They are the extension of you as a lineage. And yet they're you not have you. to restrain yourself. <laughs> I mean, I've turned into my father, but I'm not my father. You know, my father would never be doing this podcast. But, you know, I move like him. I sound like him. It's quite spooky, really. But, you know, I'm not him. And then the next one sort of rather fits into that, and that is acceptance. The thing we want most from our parents, and the greatest gift a parent can give, is acceptance. And that, you know, I'm, I accept you and I'm proud of you. I mean, those are two incredibly strong things you can say to your son or daughter. I think that's true. I think it's very important. I think so many people who lacked that in their relationship with their parents carry that injury with them. That sense of like, I never heard my dad say he's proud of me. I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to who, who the, the first time they heard their father say, I'm proud of you, seared into their brains because of how infrequent it is. At the same time, we shouldn't overcompensate. Every scribble is not a beautiful work of art. <laughs> Every effort isn't great. Every trial doesn't deserve a trophy. Yes, but you can show interest in those scribblings. You can say, oh, what's this here? You know, that, is that a house? You can show interest. Yes. Which is a form of acceptance rather than, oh, yeah, 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 sort of kind of thing, because we're too busy doing other things. So I'm sorry, I'm going to stick with my idea of acceptance. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. I think, again, like every superpower, they come with great responsibility. Exactly. The next one is, and I've put it as sort of a double thing, experience and knowledge. You sort of want your father to show you where the bees keep the honey sort of kind of thing. You want them to have knowledge of the world. You sort of want them to have taken some risks and been out in the world, I suppose. Yeah, this is certainly true. I think this is equally true for your mom, right? I think we, and for the other mentors in our lives, it's like, how do we learn things, right, as a creature? We experience them firsthand. That's probably the most powerful form of learning. We are told a story. So that's education, that's reading books, that's reviewing materials, watching movies. And we observe the behavior of, of the people around us. Those are basically the three modes of discovery we've got as human beings. And, and I think the, the more we're able to offer our kids as experience and wisdom, the better. I think it's why I think moms and dads should take their kids to work and get them involved in as much as possible. That's like why I think we should encourage our kids to work themselves as young as possible. I mean, my son's had jobs since middle school. He started working earlier in his life than I did. And that was out of a conscious um, desire for him to get this kind of wisdom that comes from work. Work is, very is a very powerful teacher. There's a lot of schools for which I would rather put my son in a coal mine than send him to the school. <laughs> he would learn more and be more useful to society in both instances. Mm, having been in a couple of coal mines, I would skip on that opportunity. <laughs> the next one I think is going to be a bit of a surprise. And I think a superpower would be the power of male friendship. The thing that I would say that most of the men who've having problems and are therefore in my office, the thing they lack is male friends. They have nobody to talk things over with beyond their wife. And that's great that you can talk to your wife, but there are some times when you, you need male friendships. And to actually have the superpower of being able to make and sustain and keep male friendships, I think, is a superpower of dads because they show the importance of it to the next generation. You know, this is among these things that is so epidemic is loneliness and isolation and atomization. I'm very lucky because I work with my best friend since fifth grade, Josh. We made movies together when we were little kids, and then we went to film school together, and then we worked together at MTV and uh, Nickelodeon and Spike, and then we started our business together. 
So I've had, and he's my, he's wow. the best man at my wedding and I'm his son's godfather. And, and he's not the only male friend in my life, but I have an embarrassment of riches on this front. And so I will say, I actually struggle to understand what's going on with how alone so many men are. I mean, I, I can intellectually understand what's happening. Oh, you know, we're isolating in our homes, playing off Call of Duty and guys aren't great at talking. And so, but there's, at the same time, I don't viscerally understand it because I've had such great friendships and I crave it. Maybe it's because I'm an extrovert. So I seek that out. I need it. I like to talk out my ideas with someone. It's how I kind of process my thoughts as they're talking for better and worse. And my final superpower is another weird one, but it comes from experience. The superpower is to balance out the mother. Because if you've got one kind of mother, you're going to need to have a father that's going to balance it out, that's going to provide something else. If you've got a mother that is super protective, you need a father that's going to take you out into the world. If you've got a mother who is got a lot of plans for you, you need a father that's going to be very accepting. If you've got a mother that's very accepting, you possibly need a father who's going to be more challenging. And the job of the guy, I think, is also to be a balance. I think this is deeply, profoundly true. And I think the balancing act happens in ways that we can't always consciously know. They're natural. And they don't always play to type, right? So my no. wife, Lisa, is... um in many ways, more assertive. Than, and I've actually learned to be more assertive through my relationship with her. We're probably pretty equal at the level of who's the, who's the good on follow through with discipline. So on average, the men tend to be better enforcers of discipline, but that's not always true. In my case, it's like 50-50, maybe even, I might even be worse than her. I might even be a little bit of a pushover. So I think that balancing act is really essential. But I think there's a meta, there's a wrapper around that balancing act. That is that I think as a husband and as a partnership in your relationship, I think it's really important that you and your spouse are fundamentally on the same page about the most important values or highest order concerns in your house. One of the things that Lisa and I talked about early on, because we'd observed it being a problem both in real life and on like TV shows like Super Nanny here in the States, is when your kids are smart and if they can drive a wedge between mom and dad to get what they want, they will do it instantly. They will identify the crack and they will bring a sledgehammer to a sharp object and blow it wide open. And so there's this balancing act between being a united front on one hand and being a yin and yang and a counterbalance on the other. Because splitting parents is the superpower of kids, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Often through lying, kids are incredibly good at lying. <laughs> They're devious little little SOBs. <laughs> so have I missed out any superpowers that you feel should be on the list? You know, I'd say being adventurous, maybe. You know, we want adventure in our lives. Sometimes we don't know that that's what we want. One of the best experiences I've had with my son and my family in the past decade is earlier this year, we spent two weeks in Italy and Matteo and I went to the edge of the world at the Dolomite Mountains, the Dolomiti. And that exhilarating experience and that feeling of adventure and sharing an adventure together, that there's very few things that can replicate that. And it doesn't need to be some expensive trip, but, but going on adventures together and being a source of adventure, I think is something that is a superpower. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk more about fathers in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and help us fund this program, it's a wonderful thing to do. It could even be your superpower, helping other people. 
Just a thought there. Um, you can find out details by going to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And you'll also find there a place to sign up to our newsletter and to participate in the program and send us a letter. And here is the one I'm going to discuss with John today. My father died six years ago, and I suppose in many ways our family has never recovered. It's been made harder because of two factors. First, I was my father's favourite. We were close because we were so much alike. I even worked for him for chunks of time. If I had a problem about anything particularly work-related, I could always talk to him about it. It has been a huge loss. Second, he could intervene on my behalf with my mother. She's a strong personality and wants things done her way. I suppose I'm just as stubborn, so it leads to clashes. But while my father could calm my mother down, I have the opposite effect. Trust me, when my mother is off on one, you don't want to be anywhere near the guilt trip. How do I fill my father-sized hole and either have a better relationship with my mother or care less about what she thinks? Wow. Well, this resonates with me on a couple fronts. So I still have my dad, but when my grandfather passed, Bill Fadulo, he left a, a hole in our, in our broader extended family that never recovered. He was a counterweight to a family that was, you know, had like six sisters. His wife, my grandmother, who also passed away several years ago, was one of many sisters. <laughs> and so his force of personality and, and everything was a balancing act to this gaggle of sisters that would sometimes take things into the stratosphere of hysteria. And he had this humor to, of it too. So he would, even though he actually had quite a temper, but despite his temper, he actually would, could diffuse things through humor. So I can really appreciate the pain of the loss. And I can also appreciate the challenge of having a strong-willed mother. My mother, I love my mom and she's great, but she's a very strong-willed person. And throughout my life, her and I have often butted heads, sometimes quite explosively. And that, that's actually waned in recent years. I think it's mostly me maturing. Now, without knowing this person's mother, that would be my first bit of advice is to look inward and say, what is it that is driving you to accelerate the explosions and to pour gasoline on the fire? Is it a desire to be right when that's not really all that valuable after all? You know, I think taking a deep breath, I think you have to stop and say, what is it that you value? And you've lost your father. You have your mother. What do you want that relationship to be like? Because you're not going to have that person in your life forever. And it's very painful. You said it's helped that you've matured. What does that mean? Well, I think maybe the single biggest definition of maturity for me, and I will admit this, this is very stoic, is not being a prisoner of your emotions. When you think about what does it mean when someone acts like a baby, it usually means they're letting their emotions get to the best of them. They're getting angry, you know, beyond what's reasonable for the situation. They're making rash and impulsive decisions on the basis of their feelings. Our emotions have an important role to play. I think being mature means regulating your emotions. So if you're in a heated debate with your mother and she's ramping things up and you are responding in kind, you're letting your emotions get the best of you. You're acting like a child. Will you ever win a fight with your mother over who's right and who's wrong? Um <laughs> There's no winning there. It's all losing. <laughs> you know, so, so that, that, no. The answer to that, at least certainly for me, but it sounds like for the person that's writing in, uh, you, no, there is no winning in that fight. I think, so that's the question is like, you know, you're fighting a battle in which there can only be a loss on both sides, most likely. So rethink it. I had a conversation with somebody on our show recently who said something that was, um, it hit me very hard right there in the moment. And he just was saying, you know, you can count how many days left you're going to have with this person. You know, take a little time and say, you know, if all goes according to nature's plan, your parents are going to die before you. So there's only so much time you have left with them. And the older you get, the less time you have. And when you think about that, if you actually add up the days, there isn't that many compared to the days that you will spend in your life doing nothing that interesting or memorable. Yeah, it's sobering because often we see our parents, I don't know, once a month or once every 
six weeks or something, particularly if you don't live in the same country, it's not very many days, is it really, when you think about it? And, you know, we moved here to, I'm in Austin, Texas. We moved here from the East Coast. And and my greatest pain is that the move has been good for our family. It's been good for our business. I like the city. But being a flight away from my parents means I've, I've not seen them nearly as much. I think that's the other thing. Why would I ruin the time I have with my mom and dad with arguing about nonsense that I won't even remember why I was arguing three days, three months from now? And what did you do about the pain of loss of your grandfather? Any wrinkles you've picked up on that one? I've never been afraid of showing emotion and expressing it. I've wept like a baby in front of friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, bosses, (laughs) employees. You know, I'm Italian, so it's, it comes easy. <laughs> so I think that um, not running from the pain is a part of that. I think I was robbed by COVID of getting to go to my Uncle Bill's um, funeral, and that has lingered with me. I just recently went to my cousin's wedding, his son, and he wasn't there. And that was the first time I got a chance to feel the fact of his absence in physical reality. And so I think there is something, we just have to go through it. We have to experience it. We can't hold ourselves back out of fear of how much pain it will have to let it out. You know, and I think that's where the, I'm not stoic, or maybe it's the path to a more stoic life on the other side is there's no getting around grief. You just have to go through it. You got to go straight through it. Yeah. Often the biggest pain comes from trying to avoid pain. Yeah. It's sort of like, When you have a child that likes to climb and you go to try to intervene and hold them and keep them safe and they're pushing back on you, that's when they're really going to get hurt. (laughs) You will cause them to fall in a way that they will hurt themselves far worse than if you take a step back and say, they know their body, they are hands-on in the experience of climbing that tree, and I am at a far. And I think with our emotions, we know our emotions if we experience them and when we hold them at a distance... We don't come to know what we need in ourselves. It's, it's the weirdness of, the, of human experience that we can have dialogues with ourselves where we don't know the answer. Isn't that so, it's so strange. Like, how can it be that I don't know the answer to a question I ask myself? It's a bizarre thing about our complex nature. So you have to do it. You have to go out into the wilderness and experience it. On the subject of difficult questions to ask yourself, which you might not necessarily know the answer, I have one of those for you. And that is, as a witness today on The Meaningful Life, I need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Oh, it really, first and foremost, is my family. You know, we live in these times that have a lot of negativity, and it's very easy to fall into a kind of nihilism about the world. Even though I'm fundamentally an optimist, and the world's technically, materially never been better than it is today. But there's also a lot of pain and a lot of things that are going in the wrong direction. And there's not much I can personally do about that, no matter what I do. And every time I feel that pull into darkness, when I think about my son, my wife, when I think about the fact that at 45 with an 18-year-old, I'm now closer to being a first-time grandfather than a first-time father, hopefully. And the exciting new adventure that lies ahead when my son finds a, a woman that he wants to marry. And then when he has kids and I become a grandfather and, and experience that, and it's, it'll be, these will be like whole new lives I get to live. And yes, I get a lot of meaning and purpose out of my work and I feel useful and productive. And so I think a good friend of mine, Arthur Brooks, I made this documentary, The Pursuit with him. And he says the four quadrants of a happy life are faith, family, community, and work. And he says, social scientifically, in terms of general social survey and happiness surveys, a rich balance in those four quadrants sets you up to have purpose and meaning. And I think family is the, is the most potent of those. Um, I am Catholic. I do have faith, like many, a pretty poorly practicing Catholic, but it plays a role in my life as well. If nothing else, to, be, to humble me before the fact that there's much more out there than I understand and that I don't need to be the master of the universe because I can't be. There's just the humbling of that is useful. I have rich work. I'm entrepreneurial. I have a, a, an organization I run. I think we do great, great work with our show, Dad Saves America, and some of our other films and projects. And community is a new one for me. And I think in some ways, we've talked a lot about fatherlessness and about the family. 
But I think the community component is something that is also in decline. You know, the loneliness, the disconnection, the isolation. We moved to a little neighborhood here in Austin that, frankly, the median age for it is probably over 60. But every morning, including this one, I will walk our dog for about two miles around our neighborhood. And I, I will talk to the neighbors. I know them by name. Last night, we went out to dinner with one of our neighbors who's the age of my parents, but is like a friend to us because she's also from New York, her and her husband. And that community involvement and engagement is so enriching. And it got us through COVID because we could walk down the street and talk to our neighbors and it was just powerful. And having that, when you don't have that, you don't realize how powerful it is to have. I would say that if you want to get a sense of community, get a dog. There we are. There's my top tip for today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but the conversation doesn't end because if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, you'll hear the bonus material. And we're going to be talking about storytelling and the importance of storytelling in our culture, you know, that the stories that people tell about fathers and how that influences us. And in particular, how important storytelling is for making sense of our lives. So, you know, what are the ingredients for storytelling? We have an expert here and I'm going to pick his brains. If you'd like to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.